Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey. On today's episode, we'll be reviewing Jordan Peele's Fright Fest, Us, in which an affluent family is tormented by their doppelgangers. Hopefully not tormenting me today, however, is my doppelganger, at least in name, Scott Shelton. Scott, how are you? Do you have any big plans for your birthday tomorrow? Or at least I guess it's tomorrow at the time of this recording. Yeah, t- tomorrow at the time of this recording, but some sometime in the past from this probably gets released. I, I don't actually have any big plans for tomorrow. I, I kind of had my birthday get together here in Boston on Friday night. A bunch of my friends and I went out um, a little bit outside Boston and, and went to one of my favorite restaurants and just had a, a nice evening like... And, you know, to follow up last time, I, I pointed out that I had to get you a present, and I sort of indirectly did, because, in, in, and also got myself a birthday present, because we're going to be going to the Schmodown Live event in Houston, which uh, is very exciting for both of us, I know. So, you're welcome. <laughs> no, absolutely. You know, I've, I mean, I feel like every single time one of these live events happens, I'm like, Scott, I, I might just buy a ticket and go to this. And you're like, no, <laughs> you can't go. You can't go without me. Yeah. You're making it happen. So we're, we're doing it. We're going to, it's a little misleading to say it's in Houston. It's a little bit outside Houston, but that's okay. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to still be a great City, time. Yeah. yeah. Texas City is where it's at. No, it's, it's going to be a good time either way. And obviously really looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, Scott, as the great John Rothstein says, this is March. And March means March Madness, not only on the basketball court, but at the movies as well. And I can think of few films which earn that title of madness more than the one that we will be discussing today, Jordan Peele's Us. Fresh off the incredible success of his directorial debut, the Oscar-winning Get Out, Jordan Peele returns with another subtextual shocker, Us. Us begins, as does any good horror movie, by setting the scene. We meet the Wilson family, Father Gabe, played by Winston Duke, Mother Adelaide, played by Lupita Nyong'o, daughter Zora, played by Shahadi Wright-Joseph, and son Jason, played by Evan Alex. The family has planned an idyllic vacation to Santa Cruz, but soon after they arrive, a dark episode from Adelaide's past starts to haunt the Wilsons when a family of doppelgangers appears in their driveway with malicious intent. Combining the brutality of a slick home invasion thriller with the dread-filled atmosphere of a John Carpenter classic, Us is in some ways a lot like Get Out and in other ways very different. Scott, does it hit the highs of that debut for you or is it another example of a director's sophomore slump? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this and and when I walked out of the theater and posted to red or letterbox as i as i pretty much always try to do at this point i was like i i literally can't i don't have anything to say about this movie yet i don't want to put a score on it i just need to think about it which be up front and say that's exactly the kind of movie i want to go see and so in that sense i really loved it i think that in some ways it's probably not as good as get out but that's also not to say that it doesn't also hit the highs of get out either if that makes sense so i think it's it's probably at the end of the day if we're just skipping to the end it's probably a little bit lesser in my mind, that being said, the moments uh, where you're, you know, in the heat of the moment with us felt just as good, maybe even in terms of the peaks, maybe even a little bit better than than get out. There was just so much hype about this movie going into it. It, w- it was really hard not to have an opinion about what the movie was going to be going into it. And that's not to say that I don't have an opinion on a lot of movies that I go to see about what it's going to be. But this is one of those movies where I feel like it had been hyped up a lot. You heard a lot of conversation about 
oh, this movie is very different from Get Out, you know, X, Y, Z. But but for me, what I got out of the movie wasn't exactly what I felt like had been advertised. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it, it did kind of, it, it did force me to morph my expectations or leave behind my expectations at some point in the movie. You know, diving in just a little bit deeper here, I'd say what I expected to be awesome about this movie is awesome. I mean, Lupita Nyong'o, like pure star power. I mean, she's absolutely amazing in this movie. I think she's been amazing in so many things that she's done. And she's still, you know, in the early years of her career, career, I'd say. And, you know, I have no idea what the Oscar conversations are going to be like nine, ten months from now. But it wouldn't surprise me if she's in the Oscar conversation for for this, you know, for her turn in, the, in this movie, because she's absolutely fantastic. I think in a lot of ways, the acting in this movie across the board is, is pretty great, at least from other characters. I think Winston Duke, I think Shahadi Wright Joseph, the whole Wilson family does a really great job in this movie because, you know, they're not only tasked with playing their untethered selves, I, should, I guess is the best way to put it, but they're, of course, also responsible for playing their doppelgangers. And I think that they do a really good job on both sides of that coin. I think it's really great. And from if we just talk about Jordan Peele, I mean, what I ended up saying in my letterbox review is that it's probably not as tight a story or and there are probably a lot more ideas in this movie than there were in Get Out. I think Get Out was such a tight narrative and what it was trying to say. And it was really, in a lot of ways, very surgical in the point it was trying to make and, and really hammer that home in such a strong and powerful way. In this movie, I don't know if it quite hammers it home. And you can tell that Jordan Peele just has so many ideas for this movie. And a lot of them, if not all of them, are really great. It's just almost an impossible or at least a Herculean task to incorporate them all into this movie, talk about them all coherently and create this tight uh, narrative that we got in Get Out. And, you know, maybe it's it's a curse of, of being compared to Get Out, because I honestly think it's it, although you, you, of course, can see the the visionary thread between the two movies and in crafting a story and telling that story. Of course, they are about different messages. And we'll talk about that, like you mentioned. But but ultimately, I think this movie gets hurt a little bit by being compared to Get Out. Ultimately, the messages aren't the same. And it's just not quite as tight of a story, in my opinion. I'm trying to stay super high level right now. And we'll talk a lot more in detail about all these things that I'm saying, Scott. But I don't know if those those comments and those thoughts resonate with you. Yeah, I mean, you know, Get Out is an interesting movie. And I, and I think you're right that you can't really probably compare the two. I mean, it, it's inevitable that they will be compared. But, you know, kind of like I said in that intro... There's a lot of ways in which the two movies are different. For me, Get Out, like it was such a sensation. And I, I do like the movie a lot. But I think as a horror fan, I was left a little bit wanting by some of the horror elements of Get Out, whereas I really appreciated the social commentary of the movie and the way that it weaved those with the horror elements. I just didn't think that those horror elements worked particularly well. And when I came out of this movie, when I came out of Us... My first reaction was kind of like, well, that was a really good horror movie, but I'm not sure about the social commentary because like there's one line in the movie that really got me thinking. Like, and we'll talk about it when we get spoilers, but like that at, up to that point, I was kind of I just kind of thought that this was your standard, you know, horror movie that there wasn't anything deeper going on here like there wasn't Get Out. But then there's one line that kind of tips you off to the fact that, oh, OK, actually, there's kind of a message here. And I you know, when I came out of the movie, I had some ideas about it, like, and again, we'll, we'll get into that. And, and I think I, I was, I was right about some things, but I think my ideas also needed some fleshing out, which happened when I, I read a review, a very excellent review by Josh Larson. You'll, I think you're going to link to that review in the show notes probably, but 
I recommend if you're walking out of this movie with confusion, which I think has been a reaction I've seen from people there kind of like, wow, I, I really enjoyed that, but I don't know. I'm not totally sure what it means or what, you know, what all Jordan Peele is trying to say here. And you're right. There are a lot of ideas and I'm, I'm sure jo- even Josh Larson's review doesn't really capture every single thing that Jordan Peele is doing here. But I think reading that review certainly helped me to sort of shape my thoughts and flesh them out a little bit more. And once I did that, once I came to understand the social commentary a little bit more, I think I appreciated the movie a lot more and the way that it is a lot more subtle, I think, in the way that it gets that message across. And, and, you know, some may say too subtle, and that's why, you know, people are walking out of it confused. But I think this is really a movie that needs repeat viewing. And I think with repeat viewing, going into it a second time, maybe knowing now you're you're having a more fleshed out idea of you know what the movie is trying to say. I think I could I I will probably grow to appreciate it even more. But right now, I think to me the horror and commentary elements of it were blended more seamlessly in this movie than they did in Get Out, at least for me. And I, I'm sure sure that won't be a particularly popular opinion. But I think maybe it's just my sensibilities more as a big horror fan. I really appreciated how effective of a horror movie this is, and I don't think that it rewrites anything in terms of the horror genre like how to scare someone or or, you know how to do scares in a movie but i think it succeeds really well in the horror elements because just of the craft of jordan peele and the fact that uh you know you can tell in these scenes he's thought out every single shot he's you know thought at every place that he wants the characters to be on on screen like every single thing is meticulous and you know, with the with the goal of being as effectively scary as possible. And I think, you know, he achieves that even though we're not being scared really in any new ways, in any ways that we haven't seen before. And I think, again, a lot of credit goes to Jordan Peele. I think a, lo- a lot of credit, as you pointed out, goes to the actors. And a lot of credit also goes to the technical aspects of this movie. The score uh, and the, the, the composer's name is failing me at the moment is really good and restrained. I think that it's not overbearing like in a lot of horror movies um, where it's like, you know, it it amps up everything to like turns it up to 11 to where it's like, Oh, look at how scary this is. Aren't you scared right now? Like, no, it it employs the score and it uses the score in strategic ways. Um, And, you know, sometimes it uses silence to its effect and other times, you know, it uses that score. You kind of forget it's forget about the music. And then all of a sudden it comes in and kind of, unsettles you which i think is is the goal but also the cinematography and this you know going into the movie this was actually not something i knew but i visibly cheered in the opening credits when i saw that the dp is mike jalakis who did the uh, cinematography for it follows which i think like in terms of horror movie cinematography like that is an absolute masterclass. and of course we've already also reviewed a movie this year that jalakis did the cinematography for uh, glass and I think that what we see in all of these movies is that this guy knows how to create an atmosphere. Um, and I think he does such a good job of that in us. The wide angle shots, we'll t- there's a couple shots in particular that stood out to me, but like, uh, you know, stuff going on in the background. Like, he, again, just like I was talking about with Jordan Peele, he knows how to shoot these movies to achieve the maximum amount of dread and fear and all the emotions that horror movies try to get you to feel. I, I was pretty wowed. By the movie, I think maybe in the last 10 or 20 minutes, uh, there's a little bit of exposition that perhaps I don't think was necessary or, or it, was, uh, it wasn't it was handled in particularly the right way. 
Um, and again, these are all things we'll talk about in the spoiler section. It's really hard to talk about this movie without getting into spoilers. But overall, I was, you know, very impressed, possibly even a step up from Get Out for me. And I think it really shows that this Get Out was no fluke from Jordan Peele. Like this guy is here to stay and he's here to continue making really original stuff, which we need nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to mince any words here. I think I think that this is in no way should be considered a sophomore slump, even if I ultimately come out maybe a little bit less positive than get out. But I mean, I, I do want to you know kind of reiterate that I think that the highs of this movie maybe surpass get out. It's just that oh, I think that there were some things that just didn't quite tie up nicely. And it, and it sounds like you felt some of those things as well, based on some of the things that you're saying, but just to circle back around and close the loop on a few of your comments, Michael Abel's d- did the score yes. for, for us. And he also did get out with Jordan Peele back in 2017. Mm. I think that it, it's so interesting that you say, or what you're saying about, you know, for the first, we'll call it 90 minutes of this two hour film, it really does feel like it's a traditional horror movie without too much of a deeper message. And I, and that was part of the, I guess my, my movie watching experience for this that I was just really surprised by. I didn't expect to at any point in this film, think that there wasn't some sort like to be disappointed by the lack of social commentary, which is probably again, kind of going back to, it's not fair to compare this movie to get out or it's not, it isn't exactly fair to the movie to compare it to get out because you know, get out is of course now known as this, you know, this, I don't know, milestone in social commentary in film for, or at least, you know, certain genres of film, maybe at least in 20, back, back in 2017. Whereas this movie, it, it does ultimately deliver its social commentary. It just takes a long time to get around to it, which I think ultimately made me feel like, Oh, it took you a really long time to get to the point of this. And I don't know if I'd feel that way if I wasn't going into the movie theater thinking about get out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe that's just the crutch that Jordan Peele has to deal with here with people expecting that now from his movies after Get Out. Yeah, real real crutch for Jordan Peele, who I believe this movie has already made something like 80 or 90 million at the worldwide box office. And that's like mostly the U.S. In terms of people's reactions, though, like it does have a B on cinema score. So like the, people are are a little bit divided on it. Um, and I think, you know, maybe the the social commentary not quite being as well for number one, being a little clunky in the way that it's, you know, oh, handled totally. down the stretch of the movie, but also maybe not being as on the nose as in Get Out. I don't know, man. I, I feel like it gets pretty on the nose at, at the end. The pro- I, mean, the, I mean, I think there's like several components to that if we want to talk about why the cinema score is lower. One, I mean, like on average, horror movies have lower cinema scores, right? Because there's like not as enjoyable experiences as like rom-coms and superheroes. Yes, but I think Get Out had like an A minus. Okay, sure. I mean, that's fair. I I think second, it's again, I think it it has to deal with the fact that Get Out, like people go into this movie and they're thinking about Get Out. I mean, maybe there's some people out there who haven't seen Get Out or they've seen it long enough ago where they're not really thinking. But I don't know how you walk. I don't think there's that many people walking into this movie not thinking about Get Out. And I do think if your expectations are geared around your experience and get out for this movie. I think for the, like for most people, they're probably going to be scratching their heads toward the end and be like, well, I don't really like, I feel the similarities, but I don't know that they're quite there. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people are disappointed by that. Not because the movie isn't good because the movie is good, but just, again, simply purely based off that comparison. It yeah. and, and then like, finally in terms of, but you know, the social commentary, which we'll get into more, I think it's probably like, a less popular social commentary to like take a stab at than mm-hmm. like than what get out was. I'm not going to say it's not, it's not mainstream because it's still, I mean, it still is in some ways, but I think that I can understand why it might leave some people with a bad taste in the, 
in their mouth, not because the commentary is bad, but because like maybe they feel a little targeted. Right. That's what I was going to say. Maybe it's a little bit more pointed towards some of the people who will go, be going to see this movie than, uh, yes. you know, the case with Get Out. But, you know, Scott, you've talked about how maybe the highs of this movie are some of the highs are higher, even higher than in Get Out. And I know that one of the highs for you was the performance of Lupita Nyong'o. So do you want to say more about, you know, so, an actress who we, you know, we've been impressed by in a lot of movies now started out with 12 years a slave, but now has really made a name for herself in a lot of interesting and different roles. You know, you think about black Panther, just as an example, uh, what did you think about her work here? Rising to prominence, so to speak in 12 years a slave and having a few movies between then and, and, you know, black Panther and, and us, but mostly I think it's going to be that, that trio of movies that people know her for. And I think that, I mean, this is, this is evidence that if there was any question about whether or not she was the real deal before she certainly is. And, and that's not to say anything bad about, you know, the, like Daniel Kaluuya and get out. Cause I mean, anyone who wants to go hear about what we think of Daniel Kaluuya, go listen to any episode we talked about. Um, we widows, talked about yeah. widows on <laughs> and you can get our full thoughts on how great we think Daniel Kaluuya is. But I think Lupita Nyong'o is just, is just next level in this movie. I mean, may, maybe, maybe I'll feel differently on a rewatch. I don't know, man, like she's so good in, in the way that she really brings to life not only this tethered character, and then when we will talk more about the tethered, the tethered, but also Adelaide, right? Like, although, you know, it's maybe mildly ambiguous for the, for the first bit of a movie, but you get this, you open with this flashback scene and then you fast forward, flash forward to, you know, present day and you don't immediately realize that, you know, that there's that immediate connection of, okay, who exactly is it that we're getting this flashback fast forward? And, but then, you know, soon enough, you, you start getting this performance from Lupita Nyong'o and tying those, you know, that flashback to the present day together. And I just think that she plays this role so wonderfully. You can tell that that, that experience in the flashback haunts her and that it still sticks with her. And, you know, maybe it's an element of going back to this sort of like childhood experience, like the area where this childhood experience happened, that's bringing it back to her. But I think she just so well represents that and, and brings that to life on screen. And then, you know, when you're introduced to these tethered characters, what you see and what you get from Lupita Nyong'o especially is something that is really is really special. And, and when, But I think for me, what really brings it home is, is that you get both of these roles that she's acting essentially in the same movie right next to each other. And it's not like she's the first person to ever play two roles in the same movie. People do it every single year. I understand that. But it just felt like something completely different in that you're playing such similar and different characters at the same time and to get that contrast and you put them on screen together and you get the idiosyncrasies of both of these characters. I just think she absolutely crushes it. And I, I can't, I literally can't, couldn't be more positive on this performance, I think. Yeah. And you know, the thing that stands out to me, it kind of goes off your last point there is like the, the degree of difficulty because uh, yeah, I have to give credits where credits due. This actually wasn't something I thought about, but my friend who I went to the movie with said this to me afterwards was saying, you know, she was acting like, against a green screen, basically, in these scenes where, yep. you know, it's the two characters. And, you know, every character in the movie is acting against a green screen at some point because everyone has a doppelganger. But, I mean, as you said, Red, the doppelganger for Lupita's character, like, by far has the most significant role of any of the, the doppelgangers. And so I think it's just such a degree of difficulty to, again, yeah, you have to, you're playing the same person in a way but also you're playing something almost completely opposite, but you don't have any, like you're not acting off of anybody. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't have anything to go off of. 
um, you know, you're, you're standing there in front of a green screen. And so I think that's what makes this so impressive is that she's able to create two distinct and equally memorable characters, as you've said, without having anything to contrast them with. I'm so glad that Taylor pointed it out because I was thinking this in the movie I was watching. And I'm just like, holy cow, there's all these scenes where, I mean, of course, you have the, the family versus family thing going on, uh, you know, when we'll talk about those scenes. But then later in, on in the movie where it's just Lupita, you know, I should say it's just Adelaide and Red. And you have the you have these scenes where it's just the two of them and that they're the only people in the scene. And and the fact that she has to act that and, and I think this speaks both to her performance and also to Jordan Peele's direction. Right. Because these two people, the Lupita and, and Jordan, have to have that vision in their minds exactly what they what that's going to be like, especially the, the first time they're shooting it. Right. When you don't have the other thing to contrast it to. Mm-hmm. And you have to have that vision in the mind of what it's going to look like. And then on the flip side, you're like, all right, we, we probably did like five or six different shoots of this. And all right, now what's going to be the final cut version? And of course, you know, in the editing room, you have to, you cut all that together and you put it together and you piece it together. So a lot of credit needs to go there as well. But to me, whenever it's done, and particularly in this case, and it's done here in this way with these particular characters that are so, uh, well, I should say at least one of these characters that's so off the wall and abnormal and this other character who is clearly dealing with her own, with her own things as well, that, that you have to really interpret and, and put into that performance. And to see that, and the fact that you have to remember that, you know, these characters aren't acting uh, in the scenes at the same time. It's just, abs- I mean, to me, it's an absolute uh, masterclass of performance. Yeah. And, you know, it will be interesting to see if she gets any kind of Oscar attention. I mean, it is early in the year. I think you could say that this is more of a genre movie than Get Out was. Like, I don't know that it will quite have the crossover appeal that Get Out did to, in terms of like getting to Oscar voters in the same way. Um, but, you know, I, I think she's certainly a contender even at this early stage of the year. Let's talk about the rest of the cast, because I think Lupita Nyong'o is backed up here by uh, some excellent work from other actors. You know, we've mentioned the actors who play the family, uh, Winston Duke, Shahadi Wright Joseph, Evan Alex. Also, you know, we have this sort of other family that is contrasted with uh, the the Wilsons that uh, is, if, uh, you know, if they're friends, but is a white family, which I think is probably somewhat significant. But uh, Elizabeth Moss and Tim Heidecker play the the parents here. Um, were what uh, you know? Which of these performances, if any of them, stood out to you, Scott? I think so many of these performances stood out to me. I think that Winston. I mean, I've already mentioned Winston Duke. I think he does a great job. Shahadi Wright Joseph and Evan Alex. I think they all do a really fantastic job portraying the other members of this family besides Adelaide. And again, all like all these characters are playing their roles and have their doppelgangers that they also, they also have to portray and they also have to keep in their mind as, as they shoot these scenes, uh, just, just similarly to Lupita Nyong'o. And then, uh, you know, you mentioned the white family, the Tylers. I think you have Elizabeth Moss and Tim Heidecker. And then you have two twins who I, I'm not sure who they are to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, the, and they're in the movie so briefly that it, it feels very, very, like, I mean, it is a very small role, right? And, and I actually kind of feel the same for Tim Heidecker and, and Elizabeth Moss as well. They're, they're pretty minor roles. I mean, I don't, I didn't obviously didn't hold a stopwatch up and say how much screen time they got. But when you think about their untethered characters, I mean, they're probably on screen for like five minutes, if that. Yeah. Even probably. it's, they're super minor roles. Uh, of course, they're, they didn't stand out in a good or a bad way. They, I mean, they're there and, and they are characters and, of course, I think anyone who has to play a tethered character, I think, really has to dig up something deep uh, within themselves to to deliver that sort of un, unnerving 
portrayal of these tethered versions of doppelgangers of themselves. And so I have to give credit where credit is due there because I think Elizabeth Moss and Tim Heidecker and also the, the two twin daughters do a good enough job portraying those roles. That being said, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination are they overshadowing anyone that we, you know, Lupita Nyong'o, Winston Duke, uh, Shadi Wright Joseph, or Evan Alex. Yeah, and, you know, this is just sort of a macro comment about the Wilson family in particular, but it's something that I thought coming out of the movie, and I also saw that uh, Demi Adige Ebay, uh, who, you know, we've shouted out here on the show before, he mentioned it in his letterbox review that uh, it's really great to see a movie where the main family is all African-American, but like it's not significant at all that they are African-American, right? Like it's just totally normalized. Like they just are an African-American family and they're the protagonists of the movie. Um, so I think that's really cool to see. And I think all the actors do a great job. And I I did, I particularly liked Winston Duke's performance. I think there's a lot of comic relief. Like the, the majority of comic relief in the movie comes from his character um, as sort of, you know, the bumbling, like, sort of goofy, but, you know, he, very convincing dad character. And, you know, I wasn't really expecting this movie to have as much humor as it did, but it was something that I, you know, went into the movie. Uh, or, you know, I had seen some reviews beforehand saying that, it, well, actually, this is, you know, more funny than it is scary. And I think Winston Duke deserves a lot of credit for, um, you know, adding that that comedic punch, which, of course, is I think is a great thing to have in, you know, horror movies because, the best horror movies are the ones where it's fun to be scared. You're not like genuinely terrified. You're laughing as you're being scared. And I think that I heard a lot of that in the theater um, when I went to see this movie. So uh, yeah, credit to him and to the rest of the cast too, who, I mean, I think they all fulfill their roles, however small, very well. Yeah. And to your point about the the horror element of this movie, it, it certainly is more of a horror film than Get Out. That being said, I don't think people should like not go see this movie because they don't like horror movies or they're scared yeah. of, you know, or they or they feel like they'll just be too scared to watch the movie. This was a flavor of horror that I know we've talked about intermittently on the podcast before that I sometimes call like the nouveau horror genre of like a quiet place and get out. Although again, to a, to a more ex, to a more of an extent than get out, right? It's but it's that idea of horror thriller or, and like horror with a message as opposed to something like pet cemetery, which we're going to, you know, which mm-hmm. we are going to review next month. I think that, that this is that kind of movie. And so I would still strongly encourage people who aren't necessarily fans of the horror genre to go see this movie. If you were okay with something like a quiet place. And then that was something that you were able to handle and you really enjoyed because yes, horror was the genre, but it was more the medium to, to deliver the, the message and, and the content that it had more so than the end itself. Yeah. And yeah, like I said, in the intro, like I think, on some level, this is a home invasion movie, which like, oh, totally. You know, that's not a traditional horror. Like, that's more of the th- that leans more into the thriller elements, I think. And that is where the movie is scariest, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about pure horror, like the home invasion is, is the part of the movie where I'm like, all right, this is what's making this a horror movie. There are some things that are genuinely scary in in these moments, and then the other elements that you that might be quote unquote horror-y, I felt that that's where you get the the comments about, Oh, this movie was more funny than scary because in those other segments, that's when it feels like it, it takes the kind of, or I should say releases the throttle a little bit and, and, and ramps down the horror elements and you get that comic relief. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and so I, you know, I think that people will still go see it all riding the wave of get out, you know, even if ultimately they, you know, are, aren't as satisfied in the same way. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of touches, which, 
made both movies special here. Also, did not realize that Winston Duke was like literally had not done a movie before Black Panther. Really? Well, yeah, that was his first movie. So this is this is this is actually his first non talk about MCU starting big likes. Well, uh, I think at this point, Scott, we should probably talk a little spoilers because there are a lot of spoilers. Um, And so if you haven't seen the movie yet, you know, skip forward a little bit, check the time codes. And so let's just talk a little bit more about the plot. And maybe, you know, as we talk about it, also sort of what the greater commentary of the movie is and, you know, how effective maybe or ineffective you think the movie is in getting that message across. Yeah. So again, one more time, putting the spoiler tags up here, we probably are going to jump very quickly into some big spoilers. So you might want to get out quickly here. Uh, But last warning before we do talk about that. So yeah, I think that this movie does a really good job with some elements of of the story. And and like you mentioned, being being a good horror movie, I think that, you know, you get this opening scene where Lupita Nyong'o's younger version of herself. So Adelaide, the young Adelaide gets lost at this amusement park or sort of, I don't know, I guess it's a boardwalk. It's like a boardwalk amusement park area and wanders into a house of mirrors and meets her, this like version, this, this girl who looks exactly like her. And then it cuts away to the forward scene. And, and ultimately they're having this vacation and they're in, into the same beach area. And what ends up happening is you get these doppelgangers that come to their house and it turns out these doppelgangers are a version of themselves. And there's, all these different versions of people beneath the ground in these tunnels and these underground areas where that are called the tethered. And they're like a shadows of re- people in real life. They're exactly like these people, except their experiences in their lives are horrible uh, and they're forced into doing things. They, ha- they don't really have any agency and they live what is described as being pretty miserable lives. And you have, well, there's several plot threads, and I don't know if it makes more sense to go one by one rather than chronologically in the movie. But the central plot thread of this movie is, of course, is this wrestling with Adelaide and Red of what it means to have this doppelganger and who these people are in general. And so if, if you break down the, the movie into some some different plot lines, I think one of them is this message about socioeconomic status, so to speak, or, or at least some proxy for like privilege and affluence and the idea that these the untethered people are the people with privilege and the tethered people lack privilege and are you know you can use some sort of metric for low income or however you want to describe it but that's kind of the first narrative thread and and theme of the movie that i see and just to dive deep into that i think it makes the most sense because if you're going to equate this movie to get out this is this is it's like or the equivalent of its race commentary from get out and so what I think here is that this movie takes a really long time for me to, or it took a long time for me to understand that this is the message that the movie was trying to send. And, you know, maybe to be fair, it also takes a little while to get to that message and get out as well, but it just felt like it didn't need to take that long. And I spent a large part of the movie not really knowing what the point of it was, if there was a point at all. And you know what? I would have been fine if there wasn't an additional point. Of course, I would have been disappointed because it's Jordan Peele or whatever. Um, and I expect that from him just because of how great Get Out was, in my opinion. But for me, it took a really long time to get there. And and then once it got there, once you get this exposition, it really becomes this idea of the, you know, the underprivileged uh, individuals, these these tethered humans who go through life without any agency, like I already mentioned, and, and have and are forced to live their lives in a way that are mirror images of, of the untethered who basically make choices for them uh, at the expense and without thinking of the people 
who are living literally, they use this word like in the shadow, the, the shadow of the individual. Right. And I think that that's really visceral language when you think about it. And I really like that, that comparison. And the, the interesting thing was before I do dive deep in, into what this narrative thread becomes is that even when this is happening earlier on in the movie, and maybe this is my fault and I'm just slow, but I don't really con- I don't connect the dots at first because you get this you get this initial exposition about what the tethered and the untethered are pretty early on in the movie. And I just didn't it didn't click with me at first until much later. And when it gets much later, when you when you get the the additional exposition around this is an uprising of the untethered to rise up into the real world and and overthrow the untethered. And this event is literally what they're calling the untethering. And this idea of an uprising of the lower socioeconomic background or the, the less privileged individuals, to me, it felt because it took so long and because there are also additional plot threads thrown in that we'll talk about, and particularly one at the very, very end, which I thought was interesting. I think that ultimately this message gets a little bit diluted. And Scott, I just love to get your thoughts about the whether you thought it was diluted, whether you thought Yeah. So, I mean, the line that I was alluding to earlier, like the the, the line when I kind of understood, okay, there's something else going on here, was uh, when the they first invade the home and they kind of ask the, the doppelganger family, you know, why are you doing this? And Red says, well, we're, or they ask like, who, who are you? And, and they say, and Red says, oh, we're Americans. So, right. So like, that's obviously something else is going on here. Um, and I think to your point, I was even understanding like that there was a message and looking for it throughout the movie, I was still a little bit lost uh, until, you know, the last 10, 15 minutes, which I think the movie probably doesn't handle as well, because really what you get mm. is Red has this long monologue where she kind of like explains a lot of stuff that like probably should have been filled in at earlier points in the movie, like to your point. And it's kind of like, oh, here, we really need to like close the loop on this. So we're just going to have this character like, you know, it's the classic scene where like the villain right before they die or whatever explains their entire plan. Um, which is never really very realistic. And so, you know, while I didn't like that, I think after I understood everything and after I, you know, again, read the Josh Larson review, thinking about some of the scenes earlier in the movie, I kind of think that maybe the movie is more effective and we just quite couldn't, couldn't quite pick up on it the first time. You know, you know, to your point, I think like, yes, this is obviously a critique of affluent society and the things that people who are affluent do or you know the people who get taken advantage of at the you know at the expense of the the very wealthy and you know are kind of forgotten because of that and i think that you know one scene which sticks out to me again thinking about it in retrospect is the scene where the white family uh the tylers is all killed and there's some really nice irony going on in this scene because you have like this Alexa type device called uh, Ophelia. Ophelia, yes. And I, so first of all, you know, they're, they're playing around with the Ophelia prior to, you know, the scene escalating. And I think, you know, on a, on a very base level, that's just obviously, a, you know, a, a, a sign of their wealth, you know, a, a way to establish, hey, this is, you know, a wealthy family with, uh, you know, sort of these sort of meaningless goods, I guess, if you want to. Yeah. And yeah, he also has a bigger boat than, yeah. um, than, than Gabe's as well. And that's talked about briefly earlier. But the irony really comes across when, of course, the Ophelia starts playing F the police in the, you know, the kill scene that occurs, which obviously, you know, very ironic that here you have this very affluent white family who will never have to worry about the problems that 
NWA was expressing in that song, uh, you know, blasting it out as they get killed. I, like, I think it's a, it's a really effective scene. Like the way that it uses that irony is very effective when you think about it in retrospect. But again, like I didn't get that the first time through even, you know, cause I was just looking for the message. And I think on the one hand, maybe that's just something that I need to go back and on, on a repeat viewing, I'll see a lot more things like that. Or, you know, on the other hand, I think you could say maybe that's just a fault of the film that maybe it's a little too subtle in some parts. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't get that point across well enough. But I think, you know, thinking about that scenes, scenes like that in retrospect helped me a lot. And I think, yeah, again, if I were to watch it again, I'd probably find more examples. Another point that Josh Larson made. Well, as, especially in that, in that maybe it, it's even more ironic because I don't know if you remember this, Scott, but it starts playing that song when Elizabeth Moss's character is trying to call, call the, police. the police. Yeah, right. Uh, so you're right. Just adding another layer to it. But another thing that Josh Larson pointed out, which I thought was interesting, was uh, the significance of the rabbits, which are obviously, you know, hanging around. There's a ton of them down in the subway tunnels where the tethered live. And uh, he talked about that as sort of maybe a critique of animal testing and cosmetics, which I thought was was interesting. You know, again, another sign of uh, affluence, perhaps. Okay, yeah. So, so this was this was going to be one of the other like things that one of the two other things that I wanted because the rabbits are something that I thought really muddled and didn't add much. Because yeah, I I guess no, I I get well. Okay, so part of it to me was they're t- like it's some message about like human like some sort of like testing, not right. just about like cosmetics around. And again, I haven't read this Josh Larson review that you're describing, so you know, forgive me if I'm treading over points that he points out in this piece. But just shut me up if I am. But to me, the rabbits almost felt like a representation of the fact that these people of lower affluence or uh, lower socioeconomic class are being kind of uh, not necessarily equated to, but there are comparisons being drawn to the way that they are treated by the affluent, as well as how you get this like genetic testing that are being done on rabbits and clones being made. It's this idea that we never we don't think about either of these groups of people uh, or these things, right, in the case of the rabbits. And we just run tests and we do things without thinking about the consequences for those individual people or, or animals. And to me, if that's the ultimate message, and again, I'm not saying that's the ultimate message we're going for, I could be misinterpreting it, but like, I don't know how much that adds to the power uh, of the threat about affluence, etc. So maybe there's a deeper meaning that Josh Larson goes into, and maybe we can talk about, talk about that. But to me, I thought this is one of those things that diluted the central message yeah, I think that's fair. I think, yeah, to, to be fair, like you do have to do a lot of sort of dot connecting maybe to get to the point that Josh Larson makes to the point, you know, so much dot connecting to the point that you have to ask yourself, you know, did the movie really intend this message or is this me trying to project something onto it, you know, that I'm perceiving it as more significant than it actually is. So, you know, I, I definitely hear your criticism there. But I also want to talk about, I guess, the twist ending, maybe, which yeah, maybe was yeah, the yeah. thing you wanted to mention. But yeah, this was the this was the third thing. So it actually worked well for me. I think it goes along with the critiques that we've been talking about. I think you know, obviously, we what we learn is that um, it, after this encounter in the Hall of Mirrors that opens the film uh, between Adelaide and and Red, we learn that actually the doppelganger and Adelaide switched out and you know the person who we've been seeing as Adelaide the whole time was actually the doppelganger at one point and uh you know Adelaide ended up having to be raised down in the subway tunnels whereas you know Red got to live the affluent lifestyle that that Adelaide finds herself in 
or I, I really mixed muddled things. It's hard to talk about the names because of the doppelganger thing. But yeah. um, in the in the initial encounter that you see in the very first scene of the movie, the doppelganger becomes Adelaide and Adelaide becomes the doppelganger. If, if you want to think of it like that, they switch places, essentially. Yes, right. So for me, and this again, Josh Larson does a nice job, I think, talking about this. It's really a commentary on how as you grow in status, as you amass all of this wealth and, you know, you, you grow your socio, uh, socioeconomic level, uh, you sort of lose sense of who you are and like, you know, forget who you are as you become more, you know, obsessed with materialism, I guess. Uh, and so I think in that respect, it works really well, right? Because Adelaide does not even realize that this happened, doesn't even remember that this happened until the very end of the movie when they're driving away. And all of a sudden, you know, it, it dawns on her, oh, hey, actually, this is what happened when I was in the Hall of Mirrors. You know, I, I it worked for me, but I don't know. Maybe you have a different perspective. I, you know, I hear what what you or maybe what Josh Larson bully, like are, are thinking about this movie. And I think on in one dimension or one level, I think that that works really well. Because I think that there totally is a message around the fact that when you gain socioeconomic status, there's some element of like you turn your back on where you came from mm-hmm. or you turn your back on your roots and you do whatever you can to – to not end up back there. And a lot of this movie is Adelaide, right? Not succumbing to the, these tethered people. And at the end of the movie, you know, not succumbing to where she came from and fighting back against that and trying to, I, I almost rise above that, I guess, and, and, and move past it and et cetera. And so in that, in that level, I think I like that. I think I do like that message. And that's not something that immediately came to me. Uh, I'll admit, like, this is not a thought that I initially had, but to me again, I just kind of go back to that. Even though I like that element of that storytelling, I don't like, I'll, I'll have to rewatch it. And you know, this could, again, this could be a total black Klansman scenario where I do an about face on certain elements. That I don't like about this movie. Like it happened last year. It could happen again this year to me though. Like the, again, this just kind of contributes to that dilution of the central thread. It's not that it's not a meaningful and important message that it gets added on at the end of the film. It just feels like they're tacking this on at the end. And it's, and it's not that it wasn't thought out and that he just threw it in at the end because like, Oh, like halfway through the filming of this movie or production of this movie, I had this idea that like, Oh, we can also add this extra layer. I'm not saying anything like that. I just think that the narrative itself might have still been tighter if we don't learn that about Adelaide. Cause I think there are some elements which it is not a problem that it raises more questions than it answers. That's not an issue. I just think that the kinds of questions that it asks leave me, not questioning my necessarily the interpretation of the movie, but central like plot elements of the movie, right? Like, all right, if so, I, I guess maybe it explains why Red can talk and the other can kind of talk and the other tethered can't talk. And it kind of explains why Red is maybe the leader of the tethered, but like, and it, it does, and it all I should say, and it also explains why Adelaide doesn't talk when she's like younger, I guess, but. It, it just seems like it's a total curveball at the end that's not like doesn't necessarily earn its curveball status in my mind. And again, I could go turn it about face when I go rewatch this movie, knowing the ending in mind and be like, OK, no, 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 I get this now. And I just kind of overlook this plot detail when I was thinking back. But to me, the overall effect of this additional plot twist at the end was that it didn't necessarily feel like it, it enhanced the movie's message. It, again, just kind of diluted it a little bit. I don't, I don't know that I uh, hear a lot of your criticism on that. Like, I think that it's not really a curveball. I don't think it's fair to say that because, you know, we have a flashback sequence earlier on that kind of alludes to it. You know, I don't think this is one of those twists that comes out of left field uh, where there's not clues early on. You know, we, ha- we have that scene in the 
I guess it's like a doctor's office or whatever, where we hear the parents talking to, you know, about the way that, um, that Adelaide has been affected by the, uh, you know, the Hall of Mirror incident. So I think we have some clues earlier on there. So it didn't feel, I didn't feel like, oh, wow, where did that come from when the, when the reveal happens? And I don't, for me, like, you know, just going back to my point, I don't really think it diluted the theme to me because I think it went along well with what it was trying to say. To your point, it, I think it answers the questions that that the movie is asking about socioeconomic status and privilege and classism and all of that stuff. Um, and so I, it, it didn't feel out of step with how I understood the movie at the time and how I you know understand it even more now. Yeah, and I don't. Yeah, I, I guess ultimately it just felt like I, I, I really hate to continue to like do this, but like it, to me, it just felt like it made the story a little bit messier. Not that it wasn't properly crafted or anything like that, but it just made the story messier when what I was hoping for, or maybe what I was expecting, based purely on the fact that Get Out was this was something a little bit tighter and something a little bit more um, surgical and in, in its delivery of its message. And instead, I got something that was a little bit messier, but. I don't know. Again, you know, to to maybe draw a comparison that's not Get Out. Like a lot in a lot of ways, this like duo of movies of Get Out and Us now really and and then Jordan Peele directing the two of those things, or it made me think about Alex Garland and the idea that he has so many ideas mm-hmm. for his movies. When you look, think about Ex Machina and Annihilation, he had so many. He clearly has so many ideas for these movies. Again, you know, th- these are all adapted screenplays rather than original screenplays. I think maybe X Machina was an original screenplay. I'm not sure, but I think these are all adapt. Like, so it's not the exact same, right? But the idea that I think that the, these are sort of not quite, but like getting that direction of auteur filmmakers who are doing really interesting stuff. And you, I think Jordan Peele is a little bit better than Alex Garland, to be fair, their ideas and their designs and their movies come out. And I think that like annihilation was a little bit messier than X Machina. In my opinion, I think that ultimately us is a little bit messier than get out. And I just think that, this final plot twist, while again, maybe saying it's not a cur- it's a curveball is maybe not quite the right word because you know I do hear what you're saying, and as I think more back about this, there those earlier hints are are more meaningful than maybe I initially gave them credit for. So I, I do want to raise my hand saying, and maybe I'm backtracking and, and backstepping a little bit on that, but I, I think that it ultimately still leads to feeling a little bit messier and a little bit less cohesive. Yeah, I think maybe it's fair to say that like Jordan Peele does for horror what Alex Garland does for sci-fi and like vice versa. I and I think that's great like to have these original filmmakers like you said auteurs even maybe at this point um who their movies are yeah you know you go to the movie to see because you know the director right like you're not going because of a particular actor because of the subject matter you're going because you trust the director and I think you know that speaks a lot to Jordan Peele that after two movies, we're already there with him. I mean, it was after one movie for Jordan Peele, even. I mean, yeah, go, I'm going to go out more and say that. Yeah. 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 And, and so in that sense, and so in that sense, like Jordan Peele, I think I don't want to draw too much of a comparison just because Jordan Peele is a bigger deal than Alex Garland. I know that I understand that. Um, but I, I do, I do see some similarities in their like filmmaking arc so far, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, I think we can move into the wrap up stage now. Uh, Scott, do you have a favorite scene or moment in us? Man, there's so many great scenes and moments in this. It's always difficult for me in horror movies to pick one because some of the best scenes are often scenes that I don't enjoy watching necessarily. And I think that uh, but I think that us gives me a couple scenes where, you know, what you get on screen is something really really awesome and so i think i have to point to one of these lupita nyong'o scenes and i'm going 
almost for the end of the movie where you have this weird sort of, I mean, we talk about the exposition that you get in that final scene or not necessarily final scene, but like penultimate interaction scene between uh, uh, Adelaide and, and red. And, and you get this weird dance routine that ultimately does end up in Adelaide killing red, but it, there's this very interestingly choreographed that just kind of left me puzzled and thinking. And, and I think it sums up the movie so well that there's something not quite right about the about the dance routine and, and the weird uh, interplay that you get between these two characters played by the same actress. And, and ultimately what you get is something that just speaks so powerfully to the kind, the, the genre of the film, I think. And, and so when I talk about, you know, beautiful favorite scene or maybe one of the most memorable scenes, it's, it's one of those, right? But there are also so many other great moments from this movie that I could point to that are totally different from that one. Yeah, one moment I want to highlight, you know, I talked about Mike Chalakis at the top. A shot that I loved happens, um, you know, about, you know, midway through the movie, maybe when uh, Zora, the daughter, has sort of like fled from the house, um, you know, running away from her doppelganger. Her doppelganger tracks her down. We have this sort of confrontation where the doppelganger is standing on top of a car and this man who's a neighbor comes out, you know, it's his car or whatever, starts yelling at her and, you know, of course, Zora takes this opportunity to sort of run away, and there's this great like tracking shot of her running away. And the background, like distant in the background, we see like the doppelganger like attack and kill the neighbor uh, with the, her scissors. Uh, and it's you know a really haunting, again, atmospheric shot. Uh, the way that you know it, we see it in the background of her her running in the foreground. Yeah, I thought was really effective and really you know fills you with dread. Absolutely. And then that reminded me of something that you mentioned way back at the beginning of of our discussion here and that the, about the score. And I think the score is easily the best score of 2019 so yeah. far and maybe one of the most memorable themes of, of a movie this year. And, and, you know, I wonder if at the end of the year we'll be still saying that because I think that that theme of us that you get in the trailer and that is sprinkled throughout this movie is something that's really memorable, not just in a haunting way and from a horror perspective, but just just from a, a, a or sorry, music being mapped to to a film i just think it's it's really great absolutely all right what's your score scott it's a it's a really good movie and i'm i'm totally feeling that this could be a contender for uh a a score that rises on a second viewing and i'm hoping to see it again this week but right now i'm going with an 8.3 yeah so this is my favorite movie of the year so far um i think it's excellent i do think that there will be better films this year i think i've talked about some of the th- some of the reasons why you know it's not a complete home run for me but it's a very very good movie that everyone should see and i give it a 9.1 all right scott uh well whether you like us or not i think it's safe to say that jordan peele isn't going anywhere and i for one cannot wait to see what he does next what we are going to do next is take a quick break but after that break we'll be talking trailers for toy story 4 and once upon a time in hollywood and breaking down the latest movie news, and more importantly, Elizabeth Debicki news. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, before we finish out today's episode, just a few movie news items and a little bit of trailer talk. Like last last time, we had a couple trailers to go through, and there's a couple more big ones that dropped this week. But we'll start out uh, with a few news items. Uh, first, 
some casting news, which has me excited. Uh, the Black Widow movie, um, finally getting a, a standalone movie for this character. Florence Pugh, who uh, is sort of a, an it star of the moment. She was in Fighting With My Family, which I loved, um, is going to be in uh, Little Women much later in the year and a, a couple other things as well. But she's been cast in the Black Widow movie. Um, Scott, I know you probably don't have as much experience seeing her on film, but uh, I think you understand why I'm excited about this. Oh yeah, totally. When I saw this casting news, I you know immediately threw it in our little our little chat and knew you freak and as I expected, you freaked out about it and understandably so, right? Like she's definitely one of the one of the rising stars in the business. She kind of well, I guess she she rose to prominence with her role in Lady Macbeth, right? Yes, and she was also in Malevolent last year. You know, fairly minor role, I think, but then obviously kind of breaking through this year with fighting with my family, which you've already seen. And we're going to talk about uh, on a future podcast, uh, one, one of our wrap up podcasts. And then also a uh, little uh, Midsommar. She's going to be in Midsommar uh, oh, in right. August. Yeah. And then of course, one of the, one of the, one of the lead roles, one of the what four lead roles in little women. So big things on, on her horizon. And, and now obviously uh, this is on her horizon as well. And I'm, I'm most interested in what this role is going to be. Is she going to be co-starring alongside Scarlett Johansson mm-hmm. in this movie? Could Florence Pugh be a younger Black Widow or is she just going to be starting alongside Scarlett Johansson? I don't have a good answer for this, but it's one of the things that's come to my mind because, you know, Florence Pugh is what like our age or if not younger. Right. And uh, I could totally see her kind of being a kind of being like a Godfather part two kind of with still most of the movie being in the present with ScarJo, but then also getting a, a very meaty, substantial portion of the film, maybe a third or more going back into this sort of flashback. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe she'll even be the villain. Uh, It'll be interesting. Totally, could be, absolutely. More superhero movie news. Uh, Ezra Miller, who, of course, uh, played The Flash in the recent DCEU movies, is kind of going out on his own, and he's uh, saying that he's going to uh, rewrite a the, the Flash standalone script that the DCEU had in place and sort of go a different direction with the character, which... Um, I think a lot of people probably want based on the way that the, you know, the flash was portrayed in uh, justice league in particular. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see whether this actually comes to fruition. Yeah. I have pretty strong opinions about this. And I think that I, I'm actually going to say, I disagree with you pretty strongly. I think that people do not want Ezra Miller doing this because the, the actual direction that they've taken since, you know, since justice league happened and, and the sort of reshuffle and rethinking of the DCEU has taken place. The people that they've brought in to do the flash movie are tr- very much trying to put a more lighthearted approach. I'm forgetting the names of the people who are currently tasked with, I think Robert Zemeckis might be the one who's like oh, really? uh, in tax. And then like Daly and Goldstein. Actually, no, it's Daly and Goldstein. It's John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein who have signed on to direct the film. And their version of the film is supposed to be much more lighthearted. They're not going to do the Flashpoint Paradox, I don't think. But what Ezra Miller wants to do is he wants to make this like darker mm. and grittier version of the Flash, much more reminiscent of the Zack Snyder movies. It sounds like this is all just what I've heard based on conversations in the articles that I've read. And I think that is a direction that they don't want to go. And I think that ultimately this is just an excuse to finally get kick Ezra Miller out of the DCEU. Cause I think ultimately um, Ezra Miller's vision for the flash is not in line with DC, the DCEU. And I mean, originally Scott Lord and Miller wrote like the very original story uh, for the uh-huh. film. 
And so I think that you can probably get like a good, a good interpretation of the fact that if the version that they're going or the version that Ezra Miller wants is darker and grittier, I think that that's probably not the direction of Lord and Miller uh, from the at least the original treatment. And the fact that Ezra Miller is going to rewrite the script who I don't think he's ever written any script before that's been like released mainstream. First off, I think that's like a huge power move by Ezra Miller. And that's not, I don't think it's going to work out for him. I think he's ultimately going to end up leaving this franchise in a couple years. And this is just something that DC that Warner brothers is indulging him on just to get, just to have a, a more legitimate excuse to finally part ways with Ezra Miller, who I've heard uh, he is one of the reasons that this film has taken so long in, in pre-production because his, his vision for the film is not in line with Warner brothers and the directors that they've hired. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, certainly I, I tend to per- perhaps be on your side in this and, I don't think the, that the DCEU needs to go in the direction that it sounds like Ezra Miller is trying to go uh, in the direction of. And I don't think they want to. I mean, they obviously don't want to. And they, they shouldn't because we've seen like more lighthearted movies like, you know, Aquaman to some extent. You know, I still had problems with it, but it was more lighthearted than a lot of the DCEU movies. And also Shazam, which is getting some of the best reviews in the DCEU so far. They're kind of finding their second wind with these, you know, movies with this slightly different tone. And so I think they wouldn't want to kill their momentum. All right, more casting news, Scott. And this is, you know, what I pitched as the most important news before we went to break. Uh, This has to do with Christopher Nolan's next movie, um, which as a side note, I don't know if you've looked this movie up on IMDb page, but I, on IMDb, but it's the page for it kind of cracked me up because it says like, nope, or plot details are unknown. However, this is described as a quote event film. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Um, but casting news for this movie, uh, we have three actors who have been cast, uh, Robert Pattinson and John David Washington uh, being the first two names uh, to, to, to be cast in the movie. And then later this week, we found out that, well, you know, our best, our joint pick for best supporting actress last year, uh, Elizabeth Debicki, also going to be in this movie. Scott, you know, like we were talking about with Jordan Peele and Alex Garland to some extent, Christopher Nolan is one of those directors where you just go to see his movies because it's a Christopher Nolan movie. And, you know, this next movie is sort of, if you think about his, his career of doing sort of one blockbuster and then one more experimental movie, that's sort of his own creation. Uh, after following up on Dunkirk, this is time for him to make a, another sort of more experimental film. Uh, and so I couldn't be more excited for this, especially with this news that, you know, John David Washington, but also Elizabeth Debicki more so is going to be in this movie. John David Washington and Elizabeth Debicki. Oh, wow. I'm totally on board for this. I'm so excited about these two actor, you know, this actor and this actress. Cause I think that it's not that they were in obscure movies and they didn't have some sort of platform to be recognized in their, in their previous movies. One being black Klansman and the other, of course, being widows having Chris Nolan as your director. Like, yes, I'm not like Spike Lee is a legendary, is a great director, legendary director. He's, often been uh, undervalued probably uh, in, in the wider film landscape. And Steve McQueen is a great director in his own right. But Chris Nolan, I'm sorry, in terms of, I guess, just popularity, that's the best way to put it. In terms of popularity, he does rise above Spike Lee. He does rise above Steve McQueen, whether you, you know whether you like that or not. That's maybe a conversation for another time. But uh, event films, I mean, what, what Chris Nolan film hasn't been an event film? Uh, and I think that this this next film, whatever this is, that's going to be released in 2020 is not just going to be an event in terms of its content, but it's going to be an event for people to go see it because Dunkirk, you know, your stereo, you know, your typical 
or what might on the on the surface look like a typical war movie that we've maybe seen a hun- like a hundred thousand times, right? But you know, it, it's a it's a movie that probably wouldn't actually this, this day and age make that much money at the box office. But this movie, because it's Chris Nolan, made over half a billion at the box office. And then you, you know, you go look at his Batman movies that just have made bank after bank after bank each time. And Inception, and, and you know, even though Interstellar was a little bit less well reviewed because it tried to do some different different things we'll say still making 700 million at the box office so you you bet that uh even if i loved black Klansman and i loved widows there are going to be more people getting into the theater to watch john david washington and elizabeth debicki and when it comes to robert pattinson yes he's had a hard time escaping the typecast of of course the twilight films and and i think he had a hard time escaping some of those early roles that he took on in his career that you know definitely elevated uh, his his persona and and his name in society, but the problem is when he moved past those, well, particularly the Twilight movies, what he was left with was being typecast in those kind of strange roles that he didn't really probably want that much to do with at that point. And so he's had a hard time, I think, working through that. And it seems like something like this, and and he's you know he's got a few other movies both recently and and on the slate coming up that maybe will help him. Uh, get past the Twilight movies, which I think finished up in 2012. So it's been almost six or seven years at this point. Yeah, no, he's definitely an interesting, you know, name to watch. Movies like The Rover and Good Time. You know, he's really sort of gotten sort of a reputation recently as more of an indie darling, which is, you know, kind of crazy if you think about where he came from, uh, like you said, with the Twilight roots. So it will be interesting to see how he plays alongside these actors in the movie. But yeah, I mean, I'm going to be there. Uh, on opening weekend, no question, because of that Chris Nolan name tag. Summer 2020. Yep. Final bit of, of news to discuss, and it's more casting news. Um, Noah Centineo, who I believe is most well-known for his role in the Netflix movie To All the Boys I've Loved Before, uh, he uh, has been cast as He-Man in the Masters of the Universe movie, which I think is it Sony that's doing it. Yep, that's right. Yeah, uh, Scott, like, I don't really know very much about Masters of the Universe at all. However, I kind of am interested in this because, you know, we've talked about how we listen to Collider stuff all the time. And Christian Harloff and Mark Riley are huge, like, Masters of the Universe and He-Man people. They even, like, wrote a treatment for a He-Man movie and were shopping it around to studios at one point, like, several years ago. Uh, And so they've been talking about this a lot, like, on Collider Live and stuff, and they have some very strong opinions about what direction they think the, uh, you know, the He-Man franchise need to take the tone specifically that these movies need to take on. Yeah. Every time that I've listened, it seems like they lose their mind about this. Yeah. Because what they want is for a more like epic, like as what Christian always says is star Wars meets Lord of the Rings. Um, we're like getting away from the more campy, silly roots that I think most people associate He-Man and masters of the universe with. And honestly, I kind of understand the point, you know, even not knowing anything about Masters of the Universe, I still understand. I still know like that it is known for being like super campy and stuff like that. So I, I kind of understand the point that Harloff and Riley are making. Uh, it, I mean, you know, that obviously Noah Centineo being cast doesn't really say much about the tone of the movie, uh, but you know, it does suggest that we may actually see this movie, you know, sooner rather than later. Um, and you know, I will be interested to see what tone it takes on, if for no other reason, just to hear whether Harloff is going to lose his mind about it. Yeah, you know what? I just want more Skeletor. <laughs> that's, I mean, they're talking about who, I guess that's the next, you know, 
next thing to determine is who's going to play Skeletor. But somebody said Richard E. Grant, which I actually thought would oh, be very interesting. Great call. Is that Snyder? He's actually Snyder's pretty good with his casting calls. I don't even know who it was, but Christian just mentioned it on the show the other day. But I think that would be a cool person to have. Idris Elba. He's all the rage these days. Get Idris Elba for it. Yeah, he's in everything. He's just going to be part of every single like major franchise universe. Um, I'm fine with it. Yeah. Okay, let's talk a couple trailers before we close out. Uh, Scott, first of all, Toy Story 4, obviously huge Pixar sequel coming out this summer. Um, we got the first trailer this week. What are your thoughts? I, I liked this full-length trailer more than I've liked any of the teasers for it so far. I'll, you know, I appreciated, I think it was, was it the Super Bowl spot that where they had Buzz in like Carnival Game? where he like messes with the other toys on the line. I enjoyed that teaser, but that didn't really tell me anything or get me excited about the movie. I just kind of got a good laugh out of it. This trailer obviously does a little bit more than that. I can't say that I'm over the moon about this. Like I'm not like, Oh my goodness. I can't, I absolutely can't wait, but you know, it gave me a little bit more confidence and gave me a little bit more idea of what this movie is, is going to be doing. And and you know what? I've heard some people say that it, it basically is just, the same plot of every toy story movie for the fourth time, basically. And just trying to figure out some new spin to make it seem original. It's a little bit more cynical take, I think on the trailer, but I also hear what they're saying. I think a lot of people and I don't, I don't know if it's a lot, but some people think that this is a very unnecessary fourth movie in what was a very good, if not one of the best trilogies of all time. And I tend to agree with that. So I'm coming in maybe a little bit more skeptical than others. That being said, this trailer did, did 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 some good, I think, in terms of making me a little bit more positive on this movie. Yeah, my main takeaway from the trailer, and I said this to you, is that I feel like this is one of those trailers which kind of seems to give away a lot of the movie. Um, and I guess that was disappointing to me a little bit. Um, I also did you like Forky? That's the mo- I mean, that's the most important question I need to be answering is did you like Forky? You know, I'm not totally on board yet, but I love all three of the Toy Story movies, so I'm sure I'll come around. I think it is interesting that we don't see any. Think any signs of Andy in the trailer, which, you know, I, I, you know, at the end of Toy Story three kind of signals that they are moving on, obviously, from from Andy. But, uh, you know, still still a bit of a surprise to not see even like an adult version of him maybe uh, playing some sort of role. But, you know, it's just a trailer, so it's possible he still pops up in the movie. Yeah, it is possible. And we'll see. I'm I'm most looking forward to, I think, just having an excuse to rewatch the first three yeah. Toy Story movies in the lead up to this fourth one. And and uh, so that I mean, that's what I'm looking forward to here, because, you know, even if the fourth one doesn't quite hit the heights that I want it to or hit the heights of the first three uh, in this in this series, I think that getting getting the chance to rewatch the the three will be like, all right. Yep. That's all I really needed out of this fourth movie. Yeah. Um, and the other big trailer we got this week was for my number one most anticipated movie of the year, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Scott, thoughts on this one? This movie I'm ready for. You know, make it yeah. make it happen. July 26th. Let's go. Let's do it. I'm I'm ready to go see it. I don't need to say anything else. Uh, I don't honestly I didn't even need to see a trailer probably to to be in for this. But this trailer did it for me. You get Brad Pitt. You get Leonardo DiCaprio, who listeners of the podcast will know is my favorite actor. Margot Robbie, who's quickly becoming one of my favorite actresses. And then you just have these scenes that are that just feel so Tarantino. And maybe that's like a, there's something intangible or maybe it's even tangible. I don't know, Scott. Maybe you can put it into words better than I can. That just feels so Tarantino and, you know, like, you know, like or not the hateful eight and some of his more recent movies, this feels like maybe a little bit less dark. I mean, we don't know what really this movie is going to be about yet. It feels less dark than the hateful eight though. And uh, a, a different flavor of 
Tarantino that I maybe have enjoyed a little bit more than some of his darker movies. So I'm very excited. And also Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, it seems very like this movie is going to be very ambitious, which, of course, you come to expect from Tarantino. But, I mean, you know, I think the original understanding of this movie was that it was going to be about the Manson family. And obviously that's going to play into it somehow uh, with Margot Robbie in particular, you know, showing up as Sharon Tate. But also, like we see Bruce Lee in this movie and, you know, the title, too, I think just seems to suggest this is more about a time in, you know, a, a, a certain time period being, you know, the 60s, 70s, early 70s in a certain place, Hollywood, more than it is about any one specific person or event. Um, And you're right. I think it does seem to have more of a uh, lighthearted, I guess, uh, upbeat feel to it than maybe, you know, Hateful Eight and and even Django Unchained. Uh, But yeah, I mean, we, you know, we get those flashes of Tarantino that we love. Uh, Great dialogue moment in the trailer, you know, involving the, the Bruce Lee character uh talking about how like his hands are lethal weapons and you know if uh i something about like if i get in a fight with you i might or if i if i kill if i use my hands and kill you or whatever i might i i'll have to go to jail and brad pitt says like that's called manslaughter you you know you kill anyone with your hands you have to go to jail that's called manslaughter didn't deliver it as well go watch the trailer instead but you know to your point it's that classic tarantino dialogue that you when you hear it you know it's him um, and so this just looks like more of the same from him. And certainly that's, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right that this, I think this movie, or at least my understanding of this movie was definitely more of the, of the Charles Manson element. And, you know, we're going to get that at some point because they've talked about it and, you know, they've cast, you know, who's going to be Charles Manson. They have Sharon Tate, but I, I do agree that the more I learn about this movie, the longer the time goes on and, and the more, you know, we see the trailer, et cetera. It feels like it's going to be less of a focus. And I actually think I kind of like that personally. And I'm much more interested in in the potential. We'll see if we get it. But the potential for social commentary around like another example of maybe like a not necessarily a declining actor in the form of Leonardo DiCaprio, but what that looks like in an actor who might be over the hump in his career. Uh, Okay, well, Scott, I think that should just about do it for this week's episode. Uh, Where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? At S. Shelton 2013. And you can find me at Scarvey Dent, freaking out about March Madness and the Duke game, which just ended and somehow Duke escaped. Um, craziness. Hey, Tennessee escaped too. Tennessee really did escape um, after having a collapse that only Tennessee could have. They pulled it out in overtime. So, you know. Anyways, uh, we hope you have enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, if you have and you'd like to support the show, don't forget about our Patreon page. But if you choose not to support our Patreon, that's okay too. But we'd love it if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope you'll be back next week uh, when we review the Tim Burton version of Dumbo. Much to to the chagrin of Scott Harvey. We're going to see the (laughs) elephant movie, but I do get to hear an Arcade Fire song. So there is that. Uh, You know, I'm willing to wager that that might be our shortest episode. Yeah. Well, I mean, what are we going to say? He's an elephant. He flies and Colin Farrell's in it. Is it a he or she? Also, Michael Keaton's in it. Yeah, Michael Keaton. And Danny DeVito. I think we're going to have some things to talk about. We're probably not going to have an hour's worth of content like we did today. I'm calling it right now 6.5. That's my review of the movie. We'll see you in two weeks. No, just kidding. Uh, we will be back uh, next next week uh, with a review of Dumbo. Uh, but for now, I'm Scott Harvey for Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.